Oh, so Liam, we're officially in the second year of recording now. How do you feel about that? Oh yeah, you're right. But I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. Wow, that that I don't know why. It, well, one, I think it's great, but I also feel quite intimidated by that for some reason. How do you feel? Um, it's gone by so quick. Mm. <laughs> I feel like I haven't improved as much as I'd hoped, but maybe I have, and I just haven't noticed. Or maybe we were always just great from the beginning. Yeah. Yes. Always great and unprepared. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a yeah if you like. You'll not get back. <laughs> well, it beats the alternative. <laughs> I'd rather be this than I'd rather be doing this than I don't know being dead. But yeah. I suppose. Well, that's a quite an extreme. Okay. So stay exactly where you are because coming up, we're discussing the penultimate instalment of Big Finish's Legacy of Time. Starring Old Sexy himself, and Ellie said Old Sexy, um, <laughs> The Avenues of Possibility. Hello, and welcome back to Cloisterbell, a weekly Doctor Who podcast hosted by Liam and Rob. Hello, hello, hello. Did the police ever say that? <laughs> Is it just cliche? I don't think if they have ever said it, I don't think they've said it since the 1950s. <laughs> I mean, in our dark history of being chased by the police <laughs> for no apparent reason. <laughs> but we say no apparent reason, but there was. <laughs> but the listeners, <laughs> the listeners don't even know that. Know about our dark history. Jeez. Oh, Rob, don't break up the past like that without any warning. Jeez. Anyway, on with the podcast. Yeah. Um, previously, we've talked about parts one to four of Legacy. Mm-hmm. And we've done podcasts on those, which are Lies and Ruins, The Split Infinitive, Sacrifice of Joe Grant, Relative Time, and now we're on to Avenues of Possibility, mm-hmm. which is part five or six. And the publisher's summary for that, D.I. Patricia Menzies is used to the strange... But even she is surprised when the 18th century itself falls on her patch. Fortunately, she has the founders of modern policing to help her with the inquiries. And when the Sixth Doctor and Charlie arrive, they find armed and hostile forces trying to change Earth history forever. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's quite a good uh, plot synopsis. Yeah. It's very similar to some of the stories we've had before in this series. But of course there's a run- running theme. Yes, yes, I agree with that. Uh, I mean, I was I was looking forward to um, coming to this one simply because it was the sixth Doctor, and uh, I mean, Colin Baker's always been a, a very good actor and played the part incredibly well. But through the um, sort of handful of big finish audio adventures that I've listened to so far, um, Colin Baker is just fantastic. He gives an even better performance than what he did on television. Um, so I was really looking forward to this one. And then um, this is the first adventure that I'm listening to with India Fisher in it is uh, Charlotte Pollard. First ever? I think so, unless she was in... Is she in... Um, unless she's in The Last Adventure. I believe she is, yeah. I haven't listened to that, though. Ah, right, okay. Uh, it's, it's very good, uh, but it has been a while since I listened to it, so... Yes, I think she is actually in that one. All right, okay. Ah. So this is probably, sorry, my second or third. For me, one of the best parts of this episode was when she mentions all the all of our other stories with McGann. 
he obviously didn't um, didn't give, he didn't feel that. No, no, but I I, uh, I knew that she is a companion who meets the in terms of her own timeline. She meets the eighth Doctor first, and then meets the sixth. So uh, that's right, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Much like River, but Mel got there first. Yeah. Um, so I, I was aware of that, and it was so uh, it was interesting hearing her mention those adventures. So I, I was basically coming from the Sixth Doctor's perspective of not knowing what the hell's going on. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> so this story is written by veteran Doctor Who story writer Jonathan Morris. Mm-hmm. Although, interestingly, he's never written for TV, but he's contributed to just about any range you could think of, including books, comics, audios, and spin-offs. Some of the ones that I've got in my collection, um, the Tomorrow Windows from BBC Books, mm-hmm. um, some of the Lucy Miller, Lucy Miller ones, um, one of them being Max Warp, which has been released on a limited edition vinyl this month. Ah, oh, right, okay. Uh, it's out at Asda, which is owned by Walmart, <laughs> the, um, for any US listeners. Mm-hmm. Of course, it won't be available in the US. It's a UK exclusive. Are you, have you got any of the finals, Liam? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Um, so because <laughs> the finals are quite expensive. Uh, I mean, I do have finals, but uh, they're music ones. They're not uh, they're albums, not uh, audio adventures. They're going for quite cheap, some of these um, big finished exclusives. I'm sure they're only about... 16, 17 pound. Oh, right, okay, for a vinyl, that is quite... Uh... Yeah. All oh, right, okay. Morris has also wrote Mary's Story, um, which was kind of a prequel to McGann's first story. Um, he's wrote the Tales from the Vault and Mastermind from the Companion Chronicles range. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we can cover those soon. So are you familiar with any other of Morris' stories? Um, not in terms of Big Finish. I am aware... I did recognise his name, because uh, as you said before, Jonathan Morris is quite prolific with the amount of stuff that he's written for Doctor Who. But again, this is more for novels, because um, I think he did um, Festival of Death, Touched by an Angel, um, a couple that, are, that that immediately spring to mind. And I know that he's written an awful lot of uh, for Big Finish, not just for Doctor Who, but I think he's also written for Vienna and Survivors. Um, yes. But I, ha- I haven't listened to those yet. Um, but yeah, I was uh, seeing that this was an episode written by him. I thought um, I thought we'd probably be in good company, and it would be very well written. And uh, it was, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So she would jump straight into the story. Yeah, let's go ahead. Let's go for it. Let's discuss. So, Di Menzies uh, and Henry Fielding are on the interview tape at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Menzies has featured in some of the Colin Baker stories mm-hmm. um, Henry Fielding, Fielding hasn't although it was implied that he's met he has met the Doctor before uh, yes I tried starting off with the first Doctor it was hinted at when, uh, when he's travelling with Dodo um, that's right yeah, <laughs> yeah which, I thought, uh, which I thought was quite nice um, one of the uh, obviously me coming from from the perspective of someone that isn't overly familiar with Big Finish and um, sort of going th- well, I'm basically uh, with the odd exception, I'm pretty much going through them as we as we're going through them for the podcast. You're a lot more familiar with them than I am. So th- the way that is explained is that Patricia um, Detective Inspector uh, Menzies has encountered the Doctor before, um, 
and I did do a quick uh, search on the Big Finish website um, and as she said she has appeared with the, the Sixth Doctor a couple of times but one of the things I quite liked about this episode is that you don't really have to be that familiar with those um, stories I didn't feel lost because it's explained she, know, she knows who the Doctor is and that she's encountered Charlie um, and from Charlie's perspective it's only been a couple of weeks but from Menzies' point of view it's been I think a couple of years I think it's said uh, and that's all the explanation that you need um, I didn't feel that there was a there was a, a lot of continuity that I needed to catch up on. I thought, you know, it, it's established that they know each other and that's enough, and then they just crack on with the story. So I thought that I thought that was good. I liked how that yes. was handled. Added as well, and oddly enough, I felt I felt a bit sad that I hadn't caught up on the Henry Fielding adventures. <laughs> so I did I did a quick Google search and there isn't any. <laughs> oh right, okay. Um Right. And <laughs> I, I think yes, it was it, I was interested to see how this um how this story would pan out because it is used in the 18th century and you've got uh, this real historical figure Henry Fielding and his brother John uh, and as I've said before I feel that there's something about the 18th century which lends itself very well to storytelling um, there's an awful lot that one can do I think as a writer in terms of the history the, the social structure and the tone and the feel uh, mm which we touched upon when we reviewed the Peter Davison story. I've forgotten the name of it. You'll probably remember. The Marion Conspiracy? That's the one. No, sorry, that, is that the one? Oh, no, hang on. No. No, no, it's not. That's Phantasmagoria. The Phantasmagoria, that's it. Thanks, Rob. Yes. Um, Phantasmagoria. Um, so I thought this was going to be really interesting that we're really going to throw ourselves entirely into an 18th century setting, but actually we don't, not really. But I didn't feel cheated by that. Um, I quite liked the way that the story unfolded and there was sort of like lots of twists and turns and going, just as you feel like you had a grasp that, oh, I think this is a, you know, it's another story dealing with time paradoxes. It's quite simple. We've got the, the present day setting and then we've got the 18th century setting. And then, and then just as you feel like you've got a handle on that, then they chuck in an alternative 1951 at you. I felt it was very simple to follow, though. It didn't seem too confusing. No, no, it definitely wasn't confusing. It was it was very simple to follow. But again, it, it, just as I thought that, right, I think I know where the story's going to go, it added this other element. But as you said, it is it is very easy to follow. It's not it's not confusing at all. It it was a very linear narrative, wasn't it? Like, mm-hmm. the, the, the 2009 stuff um, followed on to the 18th century stuff and then it followed on into the 1951 stuff so it was very um it went through stages it was a very coherent kind of story wasn't it it wasn't jumping back and forward in the narrative if you know what i mean oh yes i know what you mean and yeah yeah so, I, so, I totally so agree. very similar to follow, yeah. yeah it is because you've got the present day setting then you've got the 18th century setting and then you've got the introduction in 1951 and then the present day setting is effectively jettisoned uh, for the majority of the story, then so you're just following the alternative 1951, where it turns out that again I thought it was a very interesting history that Jonathan Morris had uh, had set up. So basically, in this story, 1951, Britain has an empire which stretches the entire globe. It rules the world, and the way that it did that was because uh, we went to war with revolutionary France and we dropped the hydrogen bomb on them. And that that would be that's in the eighteenth century. So um, 
in the late 18th century. So that was sort of interesting. And then it was very, um, it, it sort of touched upon the fact that maybe this was the alternative reality we see in the John Pertwee story Inferno. You know, with um, with the the army and the police structure, because we have a brigade leader. Yeah, that could be a possibility, couldn't it? Yeah, we saw, I thought the, the very was... the very same reality. Yeah. yeah, so I thought that was quite nice that that the alternative, it, it's there if you notice it, and it's there if you if if you want to think of it on these terms. But it seemed to be that it it, it established the alternative reality in the Pertwee story Inferno and how that came to be, which I thought was quite good. Uh, did you clock the reference to Goodnight Sweetheart? Oh yes, I was going to get to that. Well, I clocked the reference before they even mentioned Nicholas Littlehurst, the magic alleyway. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yes, Henry takes Menzies to the alleyway that he travelled through, and there's this breach in time which Menzies calls the time breaks, <laughs> and she also mentioned the magic alleyway from Goodnight Sweetheart, which is a British sitcom from the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. Um. Shall we discuss um, Goodnight Sweetheart a bit further? Because Gary Sparrow kind of lived a double life, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, he did. So uh, Nicholas Lindhurst played um, Gary Sparrow in the sitcom Goodnight Sweetheart, where he is a, an antiques dealer. And he it turns out that the alleyway behind his antique shop actually has sort of this time portal where he can travel to world uh, 1940s uh, London during during the Blitz. And he leads this double life. So it's all about how he deals with his life in in Blitz time London and the present day. And he's basically two-timing two women, isn't he? Yes. I mean, at the time I thought, wow, he's he's got it all. He's living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> but looking back, in retrospect... Um, yeah, it's a very questionable kind of lifestyle for for a hero of a show, for the protagonist. Yeah, and I think it's actually because Nicholas Lindhurst is a very likeable uh, person. He plays very likeable people. I think it's actually, he, he makes it acceptable. Because I think if yeah. you've got another actor to play the part, it wouldn't matter how well they played it, you would go, God, this guy's a slime ball. Look at him, what he's doing. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't question the morality of it because it's Nicholas Lindhurst. And technically, one relationship preceded the other. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's not like he's two-timing. Although he is, but he isn't. But yeah, I know what yeah. you mean. Um, oh yeah, and one of the one of the running gags in, in the series is that um, when he's in 1940s London, he impresses everyone with his songwriting abilities because he's passing off Beatles songs as if they were his own. Oh yes. Okay, so that's... That's actually happening now, isn't it? What's the movie called that's coming out? Yeah, it came out a couple of months ago, I think, now. Where the guy bangs his head and wakes up and the Beatles never existed. <laughs> yes, although strangely Oasis did. Um, I loved how a lot of people reviewing that movie because it got slated. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of the reviewers were basically going, "This, the plot of this story was done with Goodnight Sweetheart and done a lot better. All right. <laughs> I suppose you're, I suppose they're right. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, Gary Sparrow and Sally Sparrow. Do you think Moffat ripped off Goodnight Sweetheart? <gasps> I never thought. Yes, that's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there we are praising him for his original ideas when he ripped God. off a, a sitcom from the nineties. Hey, yeah. that's Stephen Moffat. Yes. 
God, what a revelation. I hope now everyone starts hating on Blink. <laughs> yeah, it's basically Goodnight's Sweetheart with statues thrown in. <laughs> so these breaches in time, um, obviously... Uh, now I'm talking about Doctor Who, not Goodnight Sweetheart, by oh, the way. Okay, okay. Oh, actually, I was totally baffled to find out that Goodnight Sweetheart returned in 2016. Oh, did you not watch it? It was Yeah, it was a one-off no. special. <laughs> it was actually... I don't know what it was. It was it was during this period when the uh, the BBC did one off. Uh, they ended up doing sort of returns to um, old sitcoms. Mm-hmm. Some were a full series. I think they did a re. I think they did a remake of Porridge, um, which I refused to watch. Um, <laughs> and they did one off specials on a couple of things, and this was one of them. And it was surprisingly good, and it made it made me actually want them to um, do a full uh, to do a full series again. It was quite good. I've just been thinking about something else as well because I love Only Fools and Horses. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, my microphone is now resting on my Only Fools and Horses collection. <laughs> it's just the right height. <laughs> right. I uh, never really got into the green, green grass. No, I, I could not get into that. No. It's been off. But um, Rock and Chips, did you ever watch that? Ah, uh, I think I caught a bit of... Uh, I think I caught a couple of episodes and it wasn't too bad because uh, that that's basically a prequel, isn't it? To- yes, um, of course it was written by John Sullivan, the creator of Only Fools, and they, um, I think it was intended to be a pilot and then a series, but it didn't get up picked up for a series, so they decided to keep on doing specials, and Nicholas Lyndhurst, who played Rodney in the original, mm-hmm. um. And he also played his biological father, Freddy the Frog, in a photograph. Oh, right, okay. In, in the final episode of Only Fools, um, Sleepless in Peckham. Um, he he plays Rodney's father in Rock and Chips, this prequel show. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, sadly, John Sullivan um, died shortly before the, the third special was released. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Um, so they didn't get to do any more, but I think it's a, a pretty good comeback for a show. Mm-hmm. I th- it I think it did obviously. It does miss a few steps before before um, Only Fools and Horses would have been a prequel. Sadly, I think there was more. There was you had more in mind. Yeah, but I think what because it's it's sort of it make. I mean, the very idea of doing a prequel to uh, to a sitcom seems a bit uh, could be seen as a bit like a daffy idea and it goes oh you're only setting yourself up to fail i think the reason why it worked and worked as well as it did was because um because of the writer yeah and there was a there was a change in tone because it was no longer a sitcom it was more like a comedy drama mm-hmm. without the audience yeah and, w- and when he passed away i remember he th- there was a lot of um uh a lot of you know a lot of people coming out and saying you know actually you know he was he was one of the best uh, television writers of, of modern years um, and probably didn't get the recognition that he, he deserved, which unfortunately tends to be the case. Um, but he was really good. And the popularity of Only Fools and Horses still, is still carrying on, which is quite good. John, uh, John Sullivan, he was very keen on having um, you know, a, a real working-class... Uh, voice on a sitcom and I mm. think he succeeded 
Uh, and that's actually something that is being lost a lot in popular entertainment now. We're, we're, the voice... We don't really have uh, a working class voice in popular entertainment, uh, really. Um, so in some respects, it feels like only Fools and Horses is, is part of um, part of something which is no longer being created, which is a shame. Mm. There's so much, um, so much comedy that um, just hasn't been replicated since. Even in the 90s, like I was watching Father Ted last night. Mm-hmm. I just caught a bit and it's the one where he's got the lampshade on his head. And uh, then the Chinese people are outside the window. Oh, yes. He's going, I hear you're a racist now, father. I am not a racist. <laughs> and then you got that woman going, going, going on about the Greeks. Uh, it's going, I don't care. And there's that perfectly racist. square piece of dirt on the window. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he goes to see that other priest and he's got all this natty memorabilia. <laughs> yeah, Father Ted was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, and then when he's do- when he's doing the the presentation to um to Chinatown to show that you know he appreciates Chinese culture, and then for some reason there's a picture of Ming the Merciless <laughs> from Flash Gordon thrown at him. <laughs> oh, yeah, that series was bonkers, but it was really good. Yeah. I think. Do you remember the Christmas episode, uh, the Christmas special, where they get <laughs> they get lost in the largest um laundry section in this uh, department oh store. yes <laughs> it, it plays out like a Vietnam movie and they're all trying to <laughs> brilliant anyway <laughs> back to the the not so fun Doctor Who <laughs> oh no oh. oh god Doctor Bloody Who oh. <laughs> right let's crack on get this over with the sooner we'll get this finished the sooner we can watch Father Ted so obviously these um, breaches in time <laughs> um it's getting a bit repetitive throughout this box set, specifically with stories mm-hmm. like Split Infinitive and The Sacrifice of Joe Grant. Mm-hmm. It's never quite the same, but it's the same kind of formula. Um, do you think it's... Does it feel too repetitive? Do you think we needed more variety with the with the stories? Or is it, is it okay, do you think? Um, no, because I think we had... A, I think we were saying that same... I think we said that with the, the previous episode, Relative Time, that it, going in the fourth episode... It felt like that this element was becoming a bit repetitive, mm-hmm. um, and I still think that's the case here. But with all due respect to, to Matt Fitton, who who was the author of Relative Time, with this episode, I think Jonathan Morris does um, uh, does a much better job. Um, I mean, one, I was I was coming into it with uh, with the enjoyment of the fact that this was a Sixth Doctor adventure. Uh, and Colin Baker always gives a great performance. That isn't to say that the others don't, but there's something uh, I'm. I think I'm warming a lot more to the Sixth Doctor audio adventures than perhaps the others. But uh, I think he is one of the one of the favourites, isn't he, on audio? Yeah, uh, I've been aware of uh, the high reputation that he uh, Colin Baker uh, has with the Big Finish audio adventures, and I'm starting to see why. Um, so, the, so I was approaching it with that enjoyment, and I quite like the the setup. Um, the whole thing to do with uh, the police force, Henry Fielding being introduced. So th- there were elements of the story which uh, which I felt were quite engaging. Having said that, though, I think a big part of why the avenue the avenues of possibility works is because finally 
we feel like we're drawing to a conclusion with the story because it's finally revealed not fully there's still a final mystery uh, behind behind them but finally we have we have the sirens uh, yes. emerging it's, it's been teased at in previous episodes but finally they they are here they are in force uh, and it, it, and as a result of that it really feels that um, the, the story's going places um, possibly there's a little bit of doubt in my mind that that's not quite the case no the, as I said because there is that the, there is that mystery because um, it, it is sort of expl- it is sort of hinted at that it's not quite the full the full story yet there's still there's still something else to be revealed. Yeah. One of the doubts in my mind that it's not going to culminate in a a siren episode at the end could be because in this story the sirens mentioned defeating the Time Lords. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a reference to the events we've already had in the episode The Sirens of Time. Yes, I agree with you. Yes, there. So this in some respects, is a, is a sequel to the very first Big Finish Doctor Who audio adventure, which is The Sirens of Time. So, yes, I agree with you there. Um, but it We d- still need to learn the mystery of why the sirens were in the prototype um, TARDIS, don't we? Yeah. A lot of mystery and not enough information given. <laughs> no, but there was something about the way that the fact that... the, the because it was sort of the sirens are hinted at in lines and ruins, and I think uh, one or two of the other episodes. So finally, they emerge here. So it did feel like uh, it did feel like a bit of a revelation, um, and it did make the adventure, it did make the episode quite compelling. But I mean, uh, with that question, what what are your thoughts on it? Are you uh, are you finding it a bit tedious or a bit boring? I'm not, but. With what I'm doing with the podcast now, I'm obviously being more critical than than I probably should be. <laughs> so I'm looking for um, I'm, I'm looking for the faults. <laughs> um, but yes, um, bit of repetition with the themes, but no, each story is kind of standalone. I wish it was something a bit more standalone with um something a bit more profound to the to the stories. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm enjoying it so far. I hope there's. A lot more payoff at the end as well. You know, we've just we've had the reveal of the sirens. I hope there's something bigger to come. Yes, I, I hope so too. I suspect there will be because I think uh, the next one we've got we've got the fourth Doctor and I think Leela and Romana are going to be in it, and it's written by Guy Adams, who's a very good uh, who's a very good writer. And in terms of the legacy of time, he 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 also wrote the Sacrifice of Joe Grant. Right. Okay. So there could be a bit of continuity tied in there, possibly. There could be. I mean, because of of the authors that we've had, he's the only one who's who's the author of more than one episode. And there could be um, obviously more doctors. Are they all are they all coming together in the same scene? Though I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, I suspect not. Um, although, no, actually. Get, mm, because I keep on forgetting, because the reason why we've got this story is because it's the 20th anniversary of Big Finish. So they're celebrating that. It'd be interesting to see if they do do a final episode, which is epic, and it pulls all these pieces together, and it doesn't have more than one Doctor in it. Um, actually thinking about it, I'd be surprised if they didn't do that. Time will tell. 
It always does. Um, <laughs> we've quoted it again. Um, yeah. They said they almost quote it at the end of this episode, don't they? Oh yes, we'll get to that. <laughs> but yes, I'm, I'm leaping ahead. Oh, we had um, the Trial of the Time Lord theme. That's the Six Doctor theme you were hoping for, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, I was hoping for that, because I, I think it's a great theme. And even though I like the Peter Howe theme, uh, I associate that more with Peter Davison's Doctor, and it's it's quite nice that at least Colin Baker's got his own sort of unique uh, theme to use. So, yeah, I'm pleased they used that. Yeah, and oh, the um, the Terror of the Vervoids title sequence, that was pretty cool that you showed me. Oh, yes, so... Um, for those that don't know, on the uh, season 23 uh, Trial of a Time Lord Blu-ray box set, uh, they've done a special version of uh, Terror of the Vervoids, where they presented it as a standalone adventure, uh, so without the trial sequences in it. And it works really well. Uh, but what they've done is they've done a, a special version of the title sequence. And it, it is really good. What they've done is they've um, they've done effectively they've done a complete new version of it. So it's the you get the the feel of the Colin Baker's title sequence with all the use of uh, stars and colours, but they've tr- transformed that into a tunnel effect. And they've d- and they've done a, a TARDIS spinning off and around, which is is really cool. I love the way that they bring the 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 title sequence uh, the the uh, the logo in and how it zooms into that it's it's fantastic it's a really good job that's so cool do you wish they'd added it to all of them well so or as an optional extra I think so well not to the transmitted episodes because also what they've done it's 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 a fantastic box set because as a special feature what they've also done on discs five and six is also for every single episode pre- uh, present them as extended versions. And I, th- I think maybe it would have been quite nice had they, they used the title sequence for, for the extended versions as well. So we get to see more of it, I suppose. Uh, that would have been quite nice. But, you know, no complaints. Yeah. We've got it for the uh, those four episodes, the extended Terror of the Vervoids, and it, it does work really well. And I suggested to you that this extended Terror of the Vervoids doesn't have to be an alternative. You could watch the original, watch the ultimate foe, and then watch the new one w- without the trial sequences. Yes. As a present day point of view. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. so an excuse to watch it twice. <laughs> yeah. Does it really work, though, without the trial sequences? Because isn't there... Some of the discussions in the trial room, don't they kind of help the narrative go forward on the screen? Well, actually, of of all the um, stories that we see, Terror the Vervoid section is the most standalone, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Actually, it, it does work really well. The only thing that is sort of kept from the trial sequence, if you like, is um, when the Doctor is presenting it for the first time, he does a sort of voiceover, you know, where he's talking okay. about all the minerals are being transported on the Hyperion 3, blah, 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 and then one of them will become a murderer. That uh, That voiceover is still used as a way of still introducing the story um which surprisingly is quite effective it sort of works in the same way that paul mcgann's doctor does a, a an introduction to the tv movie mm-hmm. if you like um but yeah it, it works very well 
obviously what they've done in order for it to narratively work is you know that uh, the bit when it looks like the doctors um destroy the communications yeah uh, obviously they've edited that out because that's explained in the trial of a town that that was falsified ev- evidence by the matrix that's right yes yeah so okay. obviously that doesn't make it in- into that version um yeah. Um, but I'd say that's probably the only the only thing that they've edited out of it, really, in order for it oh, to make brilliant. sense. So it does it does work. Very cool. And actually, um, just as uh, we're talking about the box set, there was a, a convention in London uh, relatively recently, and they've just announced that they will be re-releasing season twelve of the Blu-ray box set. Somehow, I think, even though this is what everyone wanted. Everyone's still going to complain about it just as much as they did. Well, the thing is, yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I think it's great because it gives it gives people the opportunity to to purchase it, and again, it will be purchased at a reasonable price. What I will say though is that apparently it it will still be uh, in relatively limited numbers. So at the time of oh, record- is it is it the same physical release or is it standard packaging? It's. I don't think it's been fully confirmed, but from the comments that I've seen on Twitter with people talking about it, and this is a p- people from the know, reading in between the lines, I think it will be uh, the version as was released. Really? I think so, yeah. Um, so at the, at the moment, uh, at the time of recording, they still don't. we still don't know when it will be released, so if anyone's interested, do keep an eye out. Um I just feel sorry for, for the people who maybe uh, purchased it on eBay for those ridiculous prices that's that's been going around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but because um, I've had it since it since it came out, and I, I'm quite pleased that other Doctor Who fans are getting the opportunity again to to buy it uh, if they want to. I wonder what the reasoning is behind it being a limited release. Mm-hmm. Like, why isn't it just generally on sale? It's so strange. Like they've put the. Um, the effort into making all this um, this new content and everything. Yeah, it is a bit odd. I mean, what what? Tell it's like what... the um, the limit. The, the just it's like they're putting a cap on the profit margin they can make. Yeah, and they can clearly make more. Well, what do you think of this? Do you think what they should have done is maybe have them released and have them limited edition with the box sets as they've come out now, and then also have an option for for them to come out exactly the same content but in a standard Blu-ray box. Oh, totally, yeah. If it's a lot cheaper, I would go for that. Uh-huh. I mean, I'd prefer to go for the limited edition release, but if I, I can't afford to get them all the time, possibly. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a fear that I'd miss some and it would be an incomplete collection and then would I buy more? It's a strange one. Mm-hmm. Mm, strange position. And, I mean, maybe when they're all done, you know, they might bring them out, they might then re-release them when, they, when they've all been released. Maybe as a complete collection for each Doctor or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that could also take a long time to happen. I mean, look how long it took for them to come out on DVD. Yes, that's true. Uh, I get the feeling, though, that with the Blu-rays, they're, they're, they're intending to get, they intend to get them out sooner rather than later. Yeah. Um, but obviously we'll see. I mean, it's 26 years worth of television that they're still putting out, which is obviously quite a lot. Um but I think it, I, I think it's interesting that they're they're, they're re-releasing it, um, which I thought would be the case because uh, when because recently uh, Doctor Who magazine celebrated its fortieth anniversary, and that came with a, a special um, that came with the DVD, 
and it had uh, it has a couple of items which are exclusive to that DVD, and also it had um, it has a couple of things from the season twelve box set, as well as as well as a couple of uh, as well as one or two items which are going to be released in the box set which is yet to come out. So, because uh, I remember texting you it, uh, texting you it, and I thought um, I thought it was curious that they were including a couple of things from season twelve. And I thought, well, maybe this means that they're going to be re-releasing it. Does that also mean that they're going to be re-releasing some of the other box sets? Mm. It's, I guess it's open to your own interpretation because I always thought the way they'd marketed it, is it called limited edition packaging? Ah, that's a good point. I'm not too sure. I'm pretty sure that's the way they, um, they described it. Mm-hmm. And to me, I thought, okay, that's a limited edition packaging. Much like Legacy of Time, but Big Finish waited till that had completely gone off the shelf. Then they told us that there was a standard edition coming out. <laughs> yeah, so maybe they're, do- maybe they're doing the same thing. with the- Maybe the exception is the Season 12 box set, because they know that, I think, when that was announced or re- initially, I think a lot of people perhaps misunderstood that it was limited edition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And plus the- there is a call for it, because people are really wanting to get their hands on it. And people are selling it for extraordinary amounts at the moment. It's ridiculous. Fans ripping yeah. off fans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, me pers- I mean, me personally, I- I'm I'm purchasing them because uh, I like them and I want them and I enjoy watching them. It, uh, I'm not bothered about the fact that it's been advertised as limited edition because it's not as if I've been uh, purchasing them for ludicrous amounts. So yeah. if it was decided to re-release them um, as they are currently, um, then you know I wouldn't be kicking them before going, well, they said it was limited edition. Because yeah. um, you were going to buy them anyway. I was going to buy them you, anyway. You would have bought them regardless, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I, I made that decision. And plus, you know, I think it's... There's a lot of extraordinary material out there, and I think it'd be quite nice for for people who like Doctor Who, who are fans, to have access to it regardless. To me, um, with comparison between the television show and Big Finish, for example, if a Big Finish is a limited release or it's selling out, it kind of makes me think that's never, ever going to get a physical release again. Mm-hmm. But with the television show, you know that it's always going to be re-released at some point. Oh, uh, I'm not sure now. I've got. Um, I mean, in well, terms. You think it's just going to be digital copies from now on? <laughs> uh, uh, well, in terms of the classic series, I think this this may very well be the last time it will be released as a physical product. Oh, maybe. Unless we go back to VHS. <laughs> then with it is, because uh, yeah. I, I can't see. I mean, I may be wrong, but I can't see them re- uh, releasing classic Doctor Who as a physical product for 4K, for example. Yeah, so I'd be surprised if there's if there's anything follow uh, a physical product following the the Blu-ray release. One thing that I am wondering about is because you know how with some of the the missing Doctor Who's that they're releasing them in animated form. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to doing the Blu-rays for the Hartnell and Troughton era, would the animated would would they be included on the Blu-ray? I would expect so. Yeah, I would expect so as well. So. And I'd expect them to release the um, the soundtracks for the existing one if they're not animated. Yeah. If it's a, if it's a complete series. So if it's. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if if 
if some people may complain about the fact that, well, they'd effectively be purchasing the same thing twice. In order to access a full series of Doctor Who, they're also purchasing something that they already own. Yeah, like what if they released a a season one complete box set with Mm. animated episodes and then a week later they discover the episodes (laughs) with the BBC (laughs) having to do loads of disc replacements. (laughs) (laughs) They better. (laughs) Anyway, I just just thought it was interesting and uh, that it was announced that season series 12 will be uh, re-released on Blu-ray. Yeah. I think if it, even if it's just in a standard Blu-ray box, crammed with discs, <laughs> yeah, I, I would I would still pick it up at some point. Mm-hmm. Shelf shelf continuity with Doctor Who's all over the place anyway. Yeah, yeah, yes, it is. It's funny though because when back in the VHS days, it never bothered us. You know, because the, there would be ones where uh, <laughs> the logo would be uh, with be... sideways diamonds, <laughs> and... <laughs> yeah, and all the rest of it. Then they changed logo, and then they changed the. Fu- it never bothered us, but now in the sort of like the DVD, the Blu-ray, <laughs> Blu-ray era, it really does bother us. Um, and it it looked like in terms of the Blu-ray, everything was going to be fine. It was all going to be sort of line up and and look nice and everything. But then from next year, the um, the uh, the certificate logo designs changing. <laughs> Just like oh, for frig's sake! <laughs> stupid. God, it'll come a uh, um, reversible box or something. <laughs> <laughs> it had better. <laughs> when uh, Menzies travels through the the time break, mm-hmm. um, she goes back and forth, and she mentions there was an hour difference in time. Mm-hmm. Did that become relative at some point in the story? No, not really. No. Uh, it, di- it didn't have, yeah, it didn't have an effect or anything like that. It yeah. was, uh, was. Uh, I found that a bit odd. Yeah, um, it did feel like it was a line that maybe would have some sort of relevance, uh, relevance, Re- relevance, relevance. <laughs> uh, Re- <revelance>. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that word. Um, l- it's also curious if if. She went through to the past, the 18th century. Uh-huh. Then she went back to present day 2009. Mm-hmm. Then instantly went back to the 18th century and she'd been away a whole hour. Now, when you consider that Fielding was in present day 2009, mm-hmm. probably for hours or days, maybe hours. No, no, I, th- I think it is a couple of days, actually, yeah. Then, it, yeah. wouldn't you think uh, a phenomenal amount of time would have passed in the past? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now that you mention it. Yeah. Unless it only works one way than the other. Mm. Maybe. But, but yeah, it it was a bit of a, a peculiar thing to mention considering that it doesn't really have an impact on the on the story. Oh, so the doctor's taken to the alternative 1951 mm-hmm. and the zeppelins. There's always zeppelins. <laughs> yes, which I thought was a good line. I like that. Yeah. Yes. The Doctor meets Commander Stables. Um, uh, maybe not, but was this in any way a reference to Maggie Stables? It hadn't crossed my mind, but possibly, yeah. There was also a, a Sprague Street, um, which I'm guessing is in in memory of Paul Sprague from the um, from the Big Finish team who died a few years ago. Oh yes, yeah, I think that's probably very likely, yeah. Yeah, I also noticed he's also credited in the box for Legacy of Time, which was quite nice. Oh, that's a nice touch, yeah. 
So the Doctor mentions to Commander Stables that um, there's been many breaches to alternative timelines and um, they form a, a distinct pattern. Um, and they go on later on to describe it like, like a bullet hole with fractures. Mm-hmm. So this must be something to do with um, some event that's going to happen in part six. And so what are what are the the known events we've got? Because in the story we had with the Fifth Doctor and Jenny, we had we kind of had Earth being destroyed, didn't we? Mm-hmm. A trace of that in the vortex. Yeah. And obviously we know there was this experimental TARDIS destroyed. I, I don't know the connection though. <laughs> it's hard to know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's, so there's a lot of things to pull together in the final episode. I think, um, I think in terms of the legacy of time, I think for the most part we we have enjoyed it. The way that it's been written is that it's sort of standalone episodes, but with these strands that thread through the entire narrative, uh, throughout the the entire thing. So, people and we've discussed it um, have their favourites. You know, some people preferring Split Infinitive, some preferring the Sacrifice of Joe Grant, and so on. Um, so that's quite good, but really so even though i really liked uh, the split infinitive um both enjoyed this episode we both really liked the sacrifice of joe grant and so on and lies in ruins of course the first episode i think that everything will it all has to work in uh the final episode because if it doesn't quite come together and satisfy even though these have effectively been individual episodes uh individual individual adventures um I think it will be quite disappointing. So um, when the Doctor's talking to the other lot in 1951, he kind of says that it's not the real... It's, it's not even real. It's not the real 1951. Is he quite arrogant in saying that, do you think? Were you a bit shocked by that? Because, um, of course, the Doctor, he's a time traveller. He should be used to dealing with alternative histories, things like that. Yeah. But he kind of just shuns them off as being not real. Mm-hmm. Well, I think given the fact that you know he's a time lord and he has a, you know, I think it's taken as read that they have um, an understanding of of time and that there's a, this understanding of you know things can change, but there are certain fixed points in time which mm-hmm. which are proper and correct and, and can yes. change. And if if they do change, then um, you know things will will mightily foul up. Um, yeah. But to say that to someone's face, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, he's he's being your whole life's a being, joke. <laughs> true but <laughs> so it's harsh but he's not hiding the truth but actually it does have it that sort of approach it does have an impact on one of the characters of that time period because he recognizes that life really sucks in that alternative reality that that it is appalling um mm-hmm. you know because we, we have this this idea that it is uh either quite fascistic or or sort of like quite communist um it's sort of really left up to your imagination which way it's gone but it's an appalling time to be in and the mm-hmm. fact that the doctor is talking like this and that actually the, the, there can be a much more positive outcome um one of the uh the police force of that time actually help him uh and the companions to um to deal with the situation and he has quite a, uh, he ends up coming to the present day and uh, living a living a, a nice life 
So the fact that the Doctor is being, you know, quite harsh about going, this reality is absolutely crap and is uh, isn't the real thing. Does does have a positive impact for one of the characters? And um, when the Doctor advises the nineteen fifty one lot against messing with the past, um, I did kind of click beforehand that maybe they were going to cause their own history mm-hmm. by being there. Yeah. Um, the kind of thing in my mind was like a predestination paradox, but of course the Doctor more accurately put it, a bootstrap paradox. Yes. Something yeah. Capaldi's been nice enough to tell us all about at one point. <laughs> yeah. um, um But I don't think we need to get into temporal mechanics. Um, after all, Doctor Who's just fiction, you know, it doesn't exactly follow the physical laws <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah. But yes, it turned out that um, they, inter- they were arriving, causing their own future. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the Doctor says to Commander Stables that a bootstrap car- paradox can't simply pop into existence. It has to be engineered. Um, and that had me thinking, was this was this scenario just engineered by the sirens, do you think? That's the way I sort of initially read it. But the, uh, like we said before, there is this sort of hint that um, maybe the sirens is a means to an end. And it's, it, this is all being... There is a sort of hint that there, there's something even beyond the sirens, which is causing causing errors with time in the first place. Yeah. And because um, the sirens started to feed on the the nineteen fifty one lot because they they themselves were a paradox, and the sirens feed on um, these anomalies in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't later. They didn't feed on the Doctor until after this, so that had me thinking that feeding on the Doctor and then eventually planning to go after the Time Lords wasn't their plan all along from the start of this story. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, maybe there's a there's another power here, kind of orchestrating what's going on, mm-hmm. possibly. Um, one of them does go to a another alternative, don't they? Doesn't someone describe going to um, a city that's on fire? Oh, possibly. If so, I'm sorry, that that passed me by. Maybe. Uh, I can't quite remember. Unless that was the 1951 timeline I'm thinking of. But yeah, it's an interesting um, relationship you were talking about with the the other guy from 1951, um, Wadmore, is that his name? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, um, Mendes is kind of quite accepting of... um, of his reaction to all this, and dare I say, even kind of sympathetic towards him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In contrast with how the doctor was reacting to him, you know, you're not real, and she's like, um, she's taking what he says and kind of listening to him. Because, mm-hmm. um, of course, he's he's kind of saying that he's a victim of the world he grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, does But then, of course, that raises the question does that make him not accountable for his, for all the atrocities that he's caused? It's a bit of a strange one. It's like he's a victim of his reality, so, and because he's a victim of that, you know, we'll let him redeem himself now. <laughs> um, so it's a strange, it's a strange scenario. Yeah, it is. It's um, it's sort of interesting, and it, it raises um, interesting moral questions uh, because he he actually recognizes because the way he's actually describing it he he recognizes that not only has he seen appalling things 
but he's also um, partook of some of them. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it is a bit of a sort of uh, an interesting moral quandary. I think um, this story deals with it in a very simplistic way. He, you know, in terms of he was a a victim of the society he grew up in, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, he recognizes the you know the atrocious things. He is a sympathetic character, uh, and sort of yeah, they they don't really deal with the um, the accountability of, of his the, actions. Yeah, yeah, I mean maybe the justice that needs to take place. Um, but then, but of course, how do you impart justice justice on someone for events that happened in another timeline, which you can't you can't really put them on trial for that, can they? <laughs> it no, no, happen. You've got no evidence, no way of um. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so this is probably the the best outcome for it. There's one scene where the Doctor and Charlie try to go to the alternative future um, in 1951, but um, the breach is closed um, because it's no longer a possibility. Mm-hmm. And simply because he decides to put actions back on back on track, it becomes a possibility. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it was possible for him to do that, wasn't doesn't that make it always a possibility? <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> no, it only becomes a, it only becomes a possibility if cer- if certain things are in place. So, the fact that he had all of them imprisoned, and so they wouldn't be able to go back to their time, in order to instigate other events, negated that reality fr- from existing. Yes, but it was all it was always a possibility that he could let them return yes it was always a a, a possibility but the but the actual um <laughs> for god's sake right but the actual yes yeah, so it was always a possibility but the the time corridor if you want to call it can only be open if that world actually exists and yes. it can only exist if uh, in this instance uh the people aren't imprisoned in order to... My brain hurts. You get what I yeah. mean. Yeah. <laughs> mm, uh, Stables is a curious character because just like Wadmore, she's she's going through with what she's kind of being told to do by the sirens and kind of doing what, what her kind of job description tells her to do. You know, she's um, leading this incursion on the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Even when she's faced with the criticism from Wadmore, you know, maybe we shouldn't be going back to kill our own ancestors. Um, she's very insistent that they are going to do it. But then moments later, we hear doubt in her voice when she's saying to the sirens, um, should we really be doing this? So, um, in a similar way to Wadmore, like, how accountable is she? <laughs> Well, I think, again, I mean, she's very accountable because she didn't have to make a deal with the the sirens in the first place Uh, because in order for her to make a deal, she has betrayed everybody. But she's just trying to ensure her own existence to maintain the paradox. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, what made her her trust the sirens in the first place? Because they've just approached her. They could be talking Mm. absolute nonsense. What made her believe them? What made her believe them in the first place? They don't even sound that trusting, you know, when they're like, 
like oh, kill as many ancestors as you want and they just start cackling in like a witch's voice <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly I mean it's I mean, would you trust someone who just walked up to you and went, you can kill everyone you can without any problems whatsoever, but in a really Okay. Creepy... Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And as you say, it's not as if, it's not as if they're hiding... It's not as if they're particularly uh, hiding how, uh, how evil they are. Yeah. Oh, so um, Field and Arms is runners... With the laser weapons, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Preparing for the battle. <laughs> um, and during this fight, um, in which um, Stables has brought a tank, hasn't she? <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, the sirens arrive, and Charlie sees them, and the Doctor recognises them. He's like, what, the sirens are here? Um, so, well, of course, a reference to sirens at time. <laughs> you know, he remembers them from that. Mm-hmm. Um and they begin to feed on Menzies' men. And because now Menzies' men from the 2009, they are the paradox because 2009 is closed. Yeah. Um, oh, my head. <laughs> <laughs> and we said this was simple. Yes. <laughs> um, the siren says to Stables, a siren's promise is written on the wings of time. Did that mean anything to you? Yeah, it's just fleeting and it doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> just words. <laughs> yeah, just words. And Stable starts becoming a siren, doesn't she? Before Wadmore kills her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, which is uh, which is curious. Yeah. Yeah, like who were... Okay, so who were the sirens before they were the sirens? Could they be... Could they be someone? Yeah, are they, are they sort of... Are they sort of like the... The Toclophane. Could they be the pilots of the prototype TARDIS? Ooh, there's a thought. Possibly. Or or the consciousness of the TARDIS. Hmm. I don't know. Interesting possibility. That, that's one avenue of possibility. <laughs> <laughs> Is it open? What? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Let's move on. So, um, Charlie finally tells the Doctor who she is. Um, I haven't listened to any of the Charlie and the Sixth Doctor stories. My journey with Charlie kind of ended at the end of the Eighth Doctor monthly range. And I've, I kind of followed, followed his journey. <laughs> All right, okay. Um, but of course, she mentions a lot of the Eighth Doctor adventures, her... her being saved from the R101. This is all spoilers for you, isn't it? Is that storm warning by any chance? It is storm warning, yeah. All right, okay. Which seems to tie in with what happened in the previous episode of Relative Time. That that actually leads up to the events of storm warning. It does, yes. Yeah. yeah. And she mentions other stories. Her her travels in the Divergent Universe, which was a a, a small era at the end of um, Charlie's story with um, a companion called Kerry's. And then the doctor encourages her to stay more. Yeah, she mentions Zagreus, and he's he seems quite. He's, that's the biggest shocker to him, Zagreus. Um, he meant she mentions Samar and Gemma, one of the. What one of the lost eras of the Eighth Doctor, Cybermen in Singapore, um, which was, the Doctor's adventures with Mary Shelley. 
Oh, you've mentioned that uh, a couple of times, yeah. right? Okay, yeah. Oh, and Mary's story, which is the um, was also written by the writer of this story. Oh, Jonathan Morris. Oh, yes, okay. Jonathan Morris. Yes, his name eluded me for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> so the sirens tell Charlie that they need them to survive the paradox, or survive in order to complete the paradox. So the Doctor is leading the sirens back to 1951, but they feed on the Doctor um, only a bit, and then they leave, um, and we presume to lead on to the Sirens of Time events. Yeah, that, Can you uh, believe, believe that for now? Yes, I think so, yeah. it. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that ties in. I think, yeah. Yeah, I think. It was the whole stuff with the Knights of Valicia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wasn't it? Can you only vaguely remember that? Uh, I think so, yeah. It wasn't, that, uh, it wasn't that explained in episode three or four of the Sirens of Time. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I need to revisit Sirens after this. <laughs> Um, so the doctor pulls through after being partially fed on, and he can't remember what happened. Most notably, the foreknowledge that Charlie's gave him. So conveniently, he's forgotten about that now. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. <laughs> how convenient. Yeah. <laughs> or dizzy. Maybe he's lying. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. That's one thing I'm not keen on in terms of the new series. That Stephen Moffat had. You know, this thing that the doctor lies. Hmm. Yeah, I wasn't keen on that. But, yeah, maybe, maybe he is lying. Yeah. But I don't think he is. No. It could be... Um, yes, maybe he did just lose his memory because of the, the feeding from the siren. Um, but it, we've also had, in this series in particular, we've had River mention the selective amnesia. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, she's met a lot of past doctors. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be something like that. So, after that's all wrapped up, Stables and Wadmore are going to depart back for 2009. Um, so they're saying bye to the Doctor and Charlie and um, the Wish Wadmore all the best. And Charlie implies that there could be romance between Stables and Wadmore. Um, who knows, possibly setting up, setting up an entire spin-off or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, no big finish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We get to see them enjoy uh, life after <laughs> the wonderful years of 2010 onwards. So the doc's happy that the breaches are now closed. Um, but it's it's bothering him that he doesn't know the cause. Um, like f- fractures around a bullet hole. Um, and he says he can't help thinking that it's familiar somehow. Mm-hmm. Familiar as in, I don't know, like sacrifices your grand familiar? Or... Familiar, like, okay, maybe familiar, like, he remembers the fourth Doctor experience in episode six. (laughs) (laughs) What are your thoughts? Uh, Yeah, maybe maybe the latter. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) He dares say that the answer will present itself sooner than later. He said, time will tell, time will tell. Um, but Charlie replies with, "Yes, it usually does." Um, she got so it did, wrong. Yeah. She did, but does this mean that McCoy was quoting Baker in remembrance? And if Charlie gave a, a kind of similar response um, to what McCoy said, it it always does. Um, 
could McGann have quoted this to Charlie and <laughs> and, she, and now she's saying it to Baker and then McCoy quotes Charlie to quote Charlie to Ace only slightly differently um, after all what's a good quote if you can't change it um, yeah. so that, that's, the, that's the last paradox of the story you know I'm surprised I'm surprised the bloody sirens didn't turn up there and then when he said that <laughs> well no because actually this makes sense because the sirens of time in that episode, they first encounter the Seventh Doctor, don't they? Yes. So, maybe the paradox, they they piggyback off the, uh, the Seventh Doctor. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> because it would, it would become... It would become a time paradox in his period because he ends up quoting it when he didn't have to. Who came up with it in the first place? McCoy. <laughs> oh, right. Anyway. <laughs> okay, so score out of 10. Oh, um, I think I'd probably give it a 7. What do you think? Exactly a 7. Mm-hmm. I'm not lying, but I can't show you. It is written down here. All right, okay. <laughs> not a copycat. Um, <laughs> you liar! Um, yeah, it was a very entertaining story... A coherent narrative, although, as we went on explaining it, it got a bit muddled up. <laughs> it covers three eras, one of them being an alternative history, but it kind of worked out and mm-hmm. um, made sense. I wasn't familiar with Mendes, but that didn't seem to hinder my capability to get just get on with the story and understand it. Uh-huh. Um, only criticism was that it it had it kind of trotted on familiar ground like sacrifice and split infinitive with dealing with this fibre which kind of holds the story together mm-hmm. um, perhaps one of the, that's one of the weaknesses of Legacy of Time it, it's essentially one story kind of stretched out and um, well yeah so like one story so far repeated five times yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the same story they just yeah. changed the names <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting way of of going about it, and I can see why they've done it. It's sort of... I wouldn't say it's a... It hasn't failed, because I have I have enjoyed listening to the stories. But at the same time, it's sort of... Um, I'm not sure if I'd actually return to Legacy of Time. Hmm. Um, a tough one. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, in terms, in terms of this episode, yeah, 7 out of 10, and basically I totally agree with everything that you've just said. I think um, we've... I think the story itself, even though it's quite complex as, as, as we've gone on about it, the way that it's presented in the audio adventure, it's, it's quite easy to follow, it's very engaging, I love the characters, it's very entertaining. Um, and I would say, yeah, maybe the weakness is arguably no fault of its own, but it's it's it's... It feels like it's 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 treading on an old ground, uh, mm. which isn't a problem in itself. But it, it is when it's all part of the same story, and it's you know you've got the previous four episodes you've just listened to. So yeah, I think if it comes a time when I want to revisit the legacy of time, I'll probably not do it in its entirety. I might just 
revisit one or two of the episodes, possibly. Yes, uh, yeah, I'll probably agree with you there, because it's not as if they don't have entertainment value. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I think that's probably the way the way to approach it. Maybe our oh, fancy listening to Split Infinitive, or oh, fancy listening to Sacrifice of Joe Grant. Yeah. So soon, I'm not sure if we'll be doing it next week. We haven't decided yet, have we? But um, following on from this, we'll be reviewing Part Six: Collision Course by Guy Adams. Mm-hmm. You excited? Yeah, I'm sort of because uh, <laughs> that's sorry convincing, but no, but uh, I am because we've, as I said, the, the stories have been interesting, and there's a, there's a lot of questions I still need answering, and I am interested to see how um, the story all wraps up. And one, it's the fourth Doctor, and we've got Leela and Romana, um, so yeah, it 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 should be an entertaining. Uh, action-packed story and I, uh, I'm under the impression everything heads to Gallifrey um, so yeah it, it should be interesting are you looking forward to it? oh definitely yeah have you got any expectations anything that hasn't kind of cropped up yet any surprises you might like to find out well again I suppose this goes back to Split Infinitive I wonder if uh, who punching is gets um, gets resolved? Oh yes, maybe punching was one of the pilots that I mentioned. I did mention that well back, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, you did actually. Yes, you did. Maybe maybe only half turned into a siren. Time will tell. It usually does. <laughs> <laughs>